The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This week on Wall Street Week, raging inflation, the president and international diplomacy, and a surging U.S. dollar. There's a lot going on. You have a host of global issues, energy crisis, massive divergence in monetary policy. Special contributor Lawrence Summers on what the Fed can do from here. We are asking for our central banks to analyze the economy accurately. And Rockefeller Capital Management CEO Greg Fleming on what asset managers are looking for in this rough climate. This is Wall Street Week. The June inflation report, it came in red hot, fueling talk of yet another 75 basis point rate hike or even 100 basis points. Certainly the inflation report suggests that there's no reason to say that a smaller rate increase than we did last time. I fully support another 75 basis point increase. However, my base case for July depends on incoming data. If that data come in materially stronger than expected, it would make me lean towards a larger hike at the July meeting. As President Biden wraps up a trip to the Middle East in hopes of gaining assistance from Saudi Arabia in lowering gasoline prices. We had a good discussion on ensuring global energy security and adequate oil supplies. And I'm doing all I can to increase the supply for the United States of America, which I expect to happen. And underscoring a summer of volatility, the euro plunged below parity, something that hasn't happened in two decades. Tweet of the morning from Sam Rowe on Euro Dollar. Add on Twitter, Lisa, big win for travelers who are terrible at maths. <laughs> euro Dollar parity, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> 
you start our package there and end it with John Farrell? I don't know who made that decision, but we say welcome to you. I'm Tom Keen alongside Lisa Bramowitz. We are not David Weston, but we've had so much fun here on a Friday to bring you Wall Street Week on Friday and, of course, into the weekend. Right now, it is a joy to go into the trenches on Wall Street Week of strategists and thinkers on Wall Street adjusting in real time. Lori Calvacina is with the RBC Capital Markets. She is exquisite at small caps and mid caps and also the gyrations of the market. A lot of good work there bouncing off the work in economics of Tom Porcelli. David Bianco is an institution far too young for the years on Wall Street at Deutsche Bank and now with DWS Group America. So valuable. I think they he walked out the door and they brought him back a second time. Two of you thrilled to have you on what is absolutely an oddest week in years. Lori, were equities removed from the turmoil in the other asset classes? I think they were a little bit this week, but frankly, I think they deserved a bit of a break after the year that we've had in the past couple of months that we've had. Um, and it, look, I think investors on the equity side were also gearing up for earnings. And we were in a little bit of a holding pattern until we got right. to the end of the week. And financials, I mean, there, there was definitely interesting moves in financials today once we finally got through the kind I'll of breakout. I'll say, Shanali Basic aged this morning. David Bianco helped me there because in your research note, you, know, you say the banks are of interest, but the banks are all varied. Which kind of bank is where investment should be today? The big banks, the ones that have sticky deposit bases, the ones that will benefit from the Fed hiking and the continued Fed hiking. So it's not comfortable to own banks if we're perhaps heading into a recession. But even if we do have a recession, this is not going to be a deflationary type of financial crisis. I think the credit costs will be well-behaved and the banks will do fine. How much are financials an idiosyncratic story versus a story of macroeconomic uh, strength, really? Because that really was the feeling when J.P. Morgan came out. And over time, it became something different. Well, it's a good question. And I, I do think when you have, it's hard, financials are always a macro story. It's very difficult for financials not to be uh, sensitive to the macro and purely idiosyncratic. However, what's happening in the macro situation right now is, is, is inflation and the Fed hiking. So who's the only beneficiary of interest rates going up? It's banks. Everybody else is worried about that, not just in terms of slowing economy and earnings and PE pressure. But uh, banks benefit, at least with higher earnings from higher interest rates. So given that backdrop, Laurie, and given the fact that you said that really stocks were somewhat immune to the volatility we were seeing in other asset classes, what are we pricing in? Is there a disconnect right now between the asset classes with stocks painting a much more sanguine picture? Look, stocks are pricing in a recession at this point in time. I mean, we've, we've moved beyond kind of growth scare territory, which is where we were for the first part of the year. Now we've been down you know, around 25% from the peak or so. And your typical recession drawdown on a median basis is 27. Your average drawdown is 32. So we're kind of pricing in that short, shallow recession scenario. We're not typing, pricing in a typical recession. We're not pricing in a severe one. We're not pricing in an extended one. But I think the good news, if we do have that short, shallow recession in the back half of the year, the equity market got a lot of that damage out of the way early. Well, I join a Friday evening and into the weekend as we get to continue with Lori Calvacino and David Bianco as well. Again, we've got so much to talk about here over the hour. I 
I can't say enough about the importance of speaking with Gregory Fleming, as we will hear in a bit. And again, Professor Summers was immensely prescient today on some of the images back to 1998. He says maybe panic uh, less than much. It'll be interesting. Yeah, and that's uh, certainly a theme as we try to chart a path. What did we say this week? That it's not necessarily the question of whether we get a recession, but the path to get there mm -hmm. and the path out of it to get back to that 2% uh, inflation rate. We've got much more uh, of that coming up after the break. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The good economic news today was that the U.S. unemployment rate fell to its lowest level in nearly four years, 5.7%. And for anyone who still hasn't got the message that inflation is the big problem, the index of wholesale prices took its second straight seven-tenths of a point monthly jump. 
the great Louis Rukeyser filming Wall Street Week in 1978 from the Stickley showroom, I think, is where that <laughs> You're wearing was. The same suit. That was a great moment of, of, of what Mr. Rukeyser did here, and it speaks to 1978. And Lisa Bramowitz, not of Bob Seeger or the moment, but it was, and, and I'm sure Lou would agree, it was the dismal 70s. Yeah. This is not the dismal 2020s. But this week we got a number that was close with the 9.1 percent inflation shocking markets and we cannot avoid the rhyming aspect of that even if this yes. isn't the 1970s. And one of the things under the radar this week folks so important is compare contrast of Jerome Powell with Paul Volcker. I got some major heat from Wall Street pros maybe uh, lose that tone and just start looking at where we are right now. Where we are is with Lori Calvacina and David Bianca with RBC Capital Markets and DWS Thrill. They could start us out here on the state of where Wall Street is right now. Lori, I'm going to go to you because you are exquisite. It's something no one talks about anymore, not the Red Sox middle relief, but small cap stocks. And the answer is small cap stocks do nothing, and then about every nine years, boom. Yeah. Are we close to the small cap boom, and why? Small caps are in a holding pattern right now versus large cap. I think they're waiting for their moment Like to what, shine. seven years? Well, they, they actually have had a terrible last year and a half. Okay. Um, and actually, they, they've been bad for quite some time. Um, but I think really around 2014 was kind of the last moment in the sun that we had there. Um, but look, I think small caps are telling you that this is a market that wants to start bottom fishing, where it, people are starting to look for things that have been de-risked. And when I talk to investors about areas of the market right. that have been de-risked, small mm. cap is the number one thing that looks like. But are they small it. cap because they're zombie companies or because their management do not merge into mid-cap size? What's the what's the the pixie dust of why they underperform? There's a few different there's a few different versions of it. There are the younger growth companies that are still up and coming. There's some that have been older and fallen on harder times. And then there, there are others that are simply a little too niche and haven't gotten scooped up yet. So there's a big variety in there. David, a lot of this hinges on inflation getting back to 2%, as so many people believe. And this is the distinction people are drawing from the terrible 70s, saying this is different different and it is less entrenched than some people fear. What is the risk that that's not the case or is it a screamingly obvious argument that the Fed will get things back to where they want it? The Fed will do everything it can do, but it may have uh, a bitter medicine for, for the economy. So I do think it's instructive to look at the 1970s and, and try not to repeat those mistakes. It's early in the 2020s. Um, from 1975 to 1979, real GDP growth was 5% plus. So real growth is not going to be that strong in the United States. It's really important that inflation does work its way back to the Fed's target of close to 2%. That's going to require the Fed doing its job, fiscal discipline, and most importantly, a renaissance, once again, like in the early 1980s, of the supply side. Reaganomics combined with Volcker's monetary medicine is what laid the seed for a very good 80s and 90s and thereafter. So we need to learn the lessons of the 70s and not repeat the mistakes. Meanwhile, as people do bottom fish, and Lori says there's evidence from the small caps, yep. how much are bonds participating in this? Has the stability in longer duration bonds provided a template for that bottom fishing, for that comfort that could even persist longer than people think? I think investors are better off for now in short-duration bonds, treasury bills, two, three-year treasuries. Uh, the bond market's not priced for the Fed getting to as high as 4%. Um, 
and neither is the equity market. That would be a risk. So I think investors should be careful with, with bonds, look for inflation-protected bonds, hold on to cash, and then look for real assets, whether it be uh, stocks or real estate or utilities. I do, like, I do like small caps, and I do like banks, for those who are willing to take the cyclical risk. I think small caps have been beaten up even more so than the large caps. And what's interesting about small caps, they were held back over the past decade or two from right, globalization and other factors. They will like, benefit more. So we got a problem here. Our guests agree with each other. <laughs> no, we agree. Okay, well, here, I think you that. You and I, I never agree. They no, agree. That's right. That's why, we're, that's why yeah, we're put on the couch together. I, I do wonder, though, when you were all talking about the United States, we have to zoom out. It is not about the United States right now. It is strong True. in the United States. In Europe, it's another story with gas. And we are looking to the ECB next week. We are looking to the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, right. whether it will come back online. We are looking to emerging markets. Tom has been talking about it all week and some of the crises percolating in pockets throughout the entire complex. At what point can the United States fall subject to what's happening outside in the rest of the world, Lori? Well, look, I think we had a template for this back in 2018. We spent most of the year thinking the U.S. would be immune from the, the global recession that would emerge from the trade war. And then recession fears came home to roost and markets fell sharply. But we've already done that at this point in time. So I think we can go back to this idea of a relative game. Will Europe be worse off than the U.S.? If the U.S. is better off, I think there's a limit to the amount of cash that institutional investors in particular are willing to sit on. So a lot of that money is going to find its way into the U.S. and the small caps. David, I want to go to the heritage of DWS and, of course, the relationship with Deutsche Bank and the giant David Fulkert's Landau, who on February 24th or 25th told me, watch the dollar, this will need to be amended. We are now living a dollar surge, and I'd say this week, folks, DXY, the blended large, uh, large nation index, was caught up with late in the week by the Bloomberg dollar index, more EM. David, how do our listeners, how do they adapt to an incredibly large, strong dollar? It's a tough thing to adapt to. Don't forget the S&P 500, not banks, but the rest is a very global set of businesses, and they're facing foreign exchange rates, and they're going to be facing tougher competition in the areas of auto and machinery and tools from Japan, incredibly weak yen, and Europe, and it's a slower, slower global economy anyhow. David Fulkert's Landau from Deutsche Bank was one of the first to warn of a recession coming, and at DWS, the asset management business, right. I do believe there will be one late this year, early next. Lori, linking your work with Tom Purcelli right now, he's truly expert on wage growth or the lack thereof. What does terrible real wage growth mean for our listeners? Well, look, it reduces consumer spending power at the end of the day. There's a, a weakness right to the, the undercurrent of spending. We Is that get... what we're going to see in the coming weeks? I think that you have seen a few companies already allude to the idea that there have been some hits to demand if you read some of the early reporters. So I think that's something we have to watch out for. I think the country's in a little bit of a shell shock at the moment with all the recession talk. <clears throat> Lori Calvacina, David Bianco, thank you both so much for spending your Friday night with us here. And coming up, we're going to take a look further at what to expect, particularly with Global Wall Street, particularly with the dollar, particularly with uh, the ECB. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
Welcome back to Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. I'm Lisa Abramowitz alongside Tom Keen. And I got to say, Tom, this has been amazing to speak with the behemoths in the field over the dozens and decades of, of Wall Street history as we try to get a sense of our place in current history. We're going to do it right now. And in chaos this week from the micro, which is you look at the Bloomberg screen and see where Euro is and you go, wait, that's not normal. Or this statistic, the curve inversion that we saw this week. And we did some of that narrowness with David Bianco and Lori Calvacina, but now it's time to go broader. And we need to get a historical perspective of where we are, and there is no one better to do that than Greg Fleming, Chief Executive Officer of Rockefeller Capital Management, who spent decades running Merrill, running uh, Morgan Stanley Wealth Management and Investment Management. You have perspective running the big wealth management shops of Wall Street throughout history. So what is the best analog from a historical perspective for the moment that we're in? You know, Lisa, it's interesting. If you're looking at analog, I'd pull back uh, pieces from different times. So we're still in the time that we were in in the last 10 or 15 years where technology is driven, deflation and prices coming down and productivity improvement. So that's still here. At the same time, we've got vestiges of the 70s and early 80s in terms of pressure on the energy side of the equation that we really haven't seen to that degree since then. And a real you know, inflation numbers this week that came in uh, hotter than we've seen literally in decades. So you have a combination of historical times coming together to create the unique time that is 2022. This moment was a pivot point this week when we got that 9.1% inflation print, when we got some of the uh, data out of banks showing that they were suspending share uh, buybacks despite the fact that it might be mandated by the Federal Reserve. How much do you view the markets as perhaps being overly pessimistic rather than not appreciating the difference of now versus a decade ago? You know, I think the markets, there's a tug of war every time there's data out. I mean, the, today people said retail sales were better than they expected in, in June. Michigan sentiment was better. So they start mm. to, uh, you know, markets go up and it's like, wait, wait a minute, maybe we'll get through the recession risk and, and be able to bring inflation down. So you have this tug of war on the data constantly. But the reality is the biggest player here, and you all know this because we've seen this historically, the Fed is focused and needs to stay focused on inflation and they will. They have got to change the expectations expectations that are getting embedded from an inflation standpoint. Greg, in the time we've got left, as Lisa mentioned, we want to go bigger and broader with you. And I don't think you've ever gotten the credit for literally inventing modern wealth management. How does it feel like to see every single firm out there do a press release that says, we want to be like Greg Fleming, we need to go to Asia to gather high net worth assets. Gorman's doing 28% gross at the shop you invented at Morgan Stanley. Every Credit Suisse has announced, UBS of course leading the way, but Credit Suisse wants to be Greg Fleming. What do you say about an industry where everybody wants to get in? Well, first of all, uh, what that means is that the business is a good business to be in. And, and you know that, Tom, the characteristics of wealth management, fee-based advice, counsel to clients, mm -hmm. recurring earnings. So it has characteristics, financial characteristics that make a lot of people want to be in the business. What I say, and this is what we're doing at Rockefeller Capital Management, is define the way that we're going to operate with competitive advantage. And what we're trying to do for clients is provide them advice across the full range of their needs through private advisors that are experienced on the investment side, open architecture, an investment platform where you bring in the best of outside managers. Mm -hmm. We've put together, and we marry that also with family office services. You know, we'll take care of bills, we'll help you with taxes. If you take care of the full needs of clients, you can offer 
it's something that not everybody right. else in the marketplace offers. So we've tried to redefine what it means with high net worth and ultra high net worth clients. You and I have never seen a bond market like this. The Lehman Barclays, the Bloomberg total return aggregate, negative 12%. Some of the corporate high grade stuff is negative 18%. How does quiet money manage with bond prices down 12%? Well, you know, the reality is uh, there are a number of things, including on the macro side, and I'll come back to this, but on the macro side, you have virtually full employment and everybody worried about a recession. So there's things, Tom, that even we haven't seen. Back to Lisa's question, what are the historical analogs? There really aren't some for, for uh, a number of the things we're dealing with here. In terms of the bond market, to have the equity market off as much as it's been this year and fixed income off to the degree that you described, that's something we haven't seen in history as well. So the quiet money was very careful about fixed income when rates were virtually zero across the spectrum. How much have we fully appreciated the absence of Japanese investors, the absence of certain Chinese money? You know, that's one of the things, Lisa, that's, that's happening both on the financial flow side and even on the trade side, which is, you know, uh, the internationalization and the globalization retrenching for really the first time in my career. Greg Fleming, thank you so much for spending Wonderful. your Friday night with Wonderful. us. Great to see you both. To hear your insights. Thank Great. you. Thank you. And Tom, we have a conversation coming up that is a really important one uh, with U.S. Treasury Secretary Lauren <clears throat> Summers. I had to be medicated for this. Professor Summers was on fire today, not only about the central bank, but we started out on the shocks that we're seeing in Asia, and particularly the hugely strange movement of the Japanese yen. Please stay with us. That is next on Wall Street Week. I'm Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 
Welcome back to Wall Street Week. I'm Tom Keenan for David Weston uh, this week, and I'm joined now by someone familiar and deservedly familiar. Lawrence Summers is Wall Street Week contributor. He is a former Secretary of Treasury of the United States, President of Harvard, but far more than that, a contributor to our economic discussion over any number of decades. Larry, I'd like to turn it into a two-hour conversation, but we can't do that on a Friday evening into the weekend. And I have to digress off the usual Fed discussion here and talk to you about a magazine cover of February 15, 1999, Greenspan Rubin and a younger Lawrence Summers in a time of Asian crisis. With dollar strength and with anticipated Fed rate increases, do we see an emerging market fragility which could lead to something related to the August of 1998 that you lived? I doubt it in the same uh, way. Central to that crisis was fixed exchange rates, where fixed exchange rates were very low levels of reserves in many emerging uh, market uh, countries and were debt that was predominantly or heavily uh, dollar denominated. I do think that the combination of high energy and food prices, a rising dollar and increasing interest rates does pose risks to emerging markets, but I think they're not likely to be systemic and across the board in uh, middle income uh, countries. I'm more concerned about countries with particularly unsound policies. Uh, Turkey would be an example, or Argentina mm -hmm. would be an example. Countries with particularly problematic um, uh, food situations. Egypt uh, would be an example. But I don't think there's the, going to be the kind of massive across-the-board right. financial distress that we saw earlier. Professor Summers, I saw a chart this week on the Bloomberg I have never, never, ever, ever seen in my life, which is the zombie nature of Japanese yen weakening. Again, this is away from the United States. But when you see the lethargy of yen weakening, given the experiment of yield curve control, how would you suggest that will end for Japan, how, will that, how would you suggest that will end for the markets? You know, uh, Tom, the problem with pegging financial variables, whether it's an exchange rate or a long-term interest rate or a, stock pr or a stock price, is that it tends to be a much easier strategy to enter. Yeah. Uh, than it does to <laughs> exit. And I think that's got to be an issue uh, for uh, Japan. Sooner or later, they're going to have to leave the yield curve control strategy. And I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen when right. they do. I think in the meantime, uh, the pressures are likely to build. And as they provide more and more liquidity, it could easily lead to an even weaker yen especially given that uh, as inflation uh, surprised on the high side here, market participants revised upwards their expectations of how right. high interest rates are going to have to go in the United States. Larry, let's
let's get back to the United States here. Just as a general statement before we look at 9.1% inflation, are we asking too much of our central bank? We had a massive fiscal expansion. I guess we're trying to do a fiscal unwind off this pandemic. Are we just asking too much of our central banks today as an institution? I don't think so. Uh, I think we are asking for our central banks to analyze the economy accurately. We are asking our central banks to keep in mind their primary mandate of price stability. And frankly, I think in 2021, our central bank lost its way. It was talking about the environment. It was talking about social justice in a range of things. It was mm -hmm. confidently dismissing concerns about inflation as uh, transitory. And it made mistakes in the core functioning of right. a central bank, including leaning into highly expansive fiscal policies rather than accommodating them as our central bank uh, did. So I don't think we were I think, don't think we were asking too much of our central bank. But I think in 2021, our central bank let us down uh, quite badly. And as a consequence, they find themselves in a very, very difficult position, not least because they don't have the credibility that uh, they once uh, right. enjoyed. I want to go back to a modest textbook of 1948 by a guy named Samuelson. And like two years later, one year later, after the 1948 miracle of his textbook, there was sky-high inflation, like the 9.1% inflation we have now. Not once, but twice we came down into the Korean War into an Eisenhower disinflation and outright deflation. Do you have an optimism we can move from 9.1% inflation down relatively rapidly? I think it's pretty clear that there are some factors like what's just happened with gasoline prices that are going to point towards disinflation. But I think that if you look at core measures of inflation, if you look at uh, so-called trimmed mean, a range of different indicators, mm -hmm. what they tell you is that this is a pretty pervasive expansion in inflation. And my reading of the experience of the last 60 years is that those don't tend to be reduced uh, completely without uh, significant economic slack. And I think if you look at the level of vacancies in the economy, the ratio of vacancies to unemployment or the level of quits, you see that we have a currently overheated economy. So we have some distance to go just to get right. back to neutral. You wrote an initial paper with a guy named Martin Feldstein. This is a few decades ago, to say the least, Larry. He codified NBER as our measure of recession. And your colleague, Jeffrey Frankel, has done great work on this. Like, actually, how do we choose to define a recession and the magnitude of recession? The parlor game right now of recession, I've never seen. The guessing of it, the gaming of it. Give us some clarity on how you define recession and the magnitude that we could see. You know, I think the classic, the classic definition of a recession is a broad-gauged uh, 
multi-month uh, decline in a range of economic indicators of uh, activity. And that's something that the NBER makes a judgment about. There's a kind of crude approximation that many economists use, which is two negative quarters in a row. I think there's a quite reasonable chance, probably close, probably 50% or a bit above, that we will in the first and second quarters have negative growth in both quarters. I don't think that is itself sufficient to establish a recession because it's heavily being driven by demand that draws down inventories and demand that draws in uh, imports. But I think there's a real risk that we'll see it through this year and an even greater risk that we'll see it next year. I would say the odds are certainly in the far above half, probably above three quarters of seeing a recession within the next uh, two years. And I don't think there's any reason why it needs to be a recession like we saw in 1982 or like we saw during the great financial crisis. But I think it's not going to be a walk in the park either. And I would suggest as a kind of rough model what we saw after the bubble burst in 2000. Larry Summers, we've got to leave it there. And again, as I speak to you, haven't spoken to you in a while. Congratulations on truly one of the great calls in modern economic history or questioning transitory. Lawrence Summers, thank you so much. Tom, next week is going to be a tremendous week with the European Central Bank in the forefront. It is. Facing yeah. a rock and a hard yeah, place I, and hoping to find some peace. I just want to say to everybody who's joined us here with Greg Fleming and, and Lawrence Summers and David Bianco and Lori Calvacina, Lisa and I were sitting together and it looked like marriage therapy, so we got a set in a setting here different in the program. This looks a little more casual. <laughs> I'm still numb from this week. I will read in over the weekend and we will go to what our colleague John Farrell, Farrell John Farrell, he says this is the mother of all ECB meetings, and particularly for people in America where it's like the lady that was with the IMF, she comes out, she does a press conference and that. No, this time's different. The ECB meeting's a huge deal. Especially because a guest on surveillance this week was talking about how this year, this time around, it's not emerging markets. This time, it's potentially Europe uh, dragging down yeah, the rest maybe. of uh, the world complex just simply because of the crisis they face with gra- gas, well, with the crisis they face with negative yields, etc. Next week will be a real interesting th- There's question. no one more qualified in the world to know that Christine, the Christine Lagarde uh, to say that it is EM together with Jerome Powell to together with Christine Lagarde, together with Bailey of the Bank of England. I'm not sure I buy the Europe-only analysis. Did we do okay today? I think so, because we're still sitting here next to each other. I guess that the therapy kind of Somebody emailed and said, how can triple, how did a guy in triple leverage cash do Wall Street Week? I said, I don't know. We've been in therapy the whole time. This is Bloomberg. (laughs) It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. 
Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.